Today is June 17th, 2021. Okay, my name is Michelle Robinson. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Uh, these lands, uh, I'm just going to start over because I don't know why I'm talking like an idiot. Okay. <laughs> I can hear a thumping in the background. Yeah, it's me like um, trying to get my notes all figured okay. out for some particular okay. reason. So I'm like, why, why is it a scroll up anyway? Okay. <laughs> This time of for sure. <laughs> the diva. <laughs> I won't look at you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh. So funny, right? Ah. <laughs> okay, I'm good. Today is June 17th. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Oki. Nagana go mekochi chase tokom aki. My name is Red Thunder Woman. My English married name is Michelle Robinson and I use she and her pronouns. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed US Canadian border are the Blackfeet. North of the border are the Siksika, Ganai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands were signed in uh, 1877, September 22nd, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Wesley Chiniki Bearspawn Nations of the Stony, and the Dene from Sutina. This was Treaty 7 way back in 1877, and they had already passed the Indian Act in 1876, so we already knew it was nefarious, even though for our people it was a spiritual covenant. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit, status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your path. I honor the Blackfoot as the elders and members have been so kind to me on my Red Road journey. Elder Red Crane taught me how to pronounce my spirit name. I was born in Calgary or in Blackfoot McKinstis as Michelle Elliott, another English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act imposed status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knives Dene. My father is so Canadian. I'm a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having an Indian Act and Post status card. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare people, also called the Great Bear Lake people in Treaty 11. I'm a native to Turtle Island and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Quintotine Indahe in Satu Dene, meaning many horse town, named after the Calgary Stampede. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous, as well as honoring the host as a guest and acknowledging your role as a treaty partner. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot elders and language keepers. As I try to learn proper pronunciation, any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I share what I know as I walk down my red road. Native, my Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you to my previous donors for already showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. To those who cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or questions. I also have a YouTube channel where you can go and subscribe. Go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcast and pin posts on social media. And today I am lucky enough to have a return guest. Yes. Woo, woo. Yeah. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Hello, Oki. Uh, my name is Katrina. Um, I was born and raised here in Mokinstis. Um, I guess a little bit about me. Um, my 
dad was born and raised in Windsor, Ontario. Um, he's of Irish and Scottish descent. Um, my mom, you know, was born and raised here in Sixaga and she moved to Calgary when she was a teenager. I think she was about 14. Um, and she raised all of us here. Um, I am Blackfoot from Sixaga Nation. Um, when I was born, I was gifted uh, a Blackfoot name by my grandparents, Jean and Philip Backfat. Uh, which is Madakigwan. I have to be really careful when I say that because um, it means uh, another girl, but it's very similar to how you say potato girl. <laughs> um, so I was taught to say that pretty slow, Madakigwan. Um, later in life, um, I think when I was about 26 years old, I was gifted an adult name by my late aunt, uh, Esther Simon. And so that is Nidana Mayaki, which means one gun woman um, that was passed down to me just before she she left us. And so she shared to me the significance of that name and, um, you know, where that came from. So she was she was named by her late uncle, Mark Wolfleg Sr., uh, who served in the World War. And so um, that came to him in a vision uh, of, you know, a woman alone with a, a gun and how how victorious and fierce she was. And so I, I wear that with pride. Um, and yeah, I've, I've obviously been on the podcast before back in, I think, January with Michelle. Um, so I'm excited to do a part two and to continue the conversation, I think, get a little bit deeper. Yeah, I'm really excited for that too, because uh, behind the scenes, we know each other and I know some of the things that have been happening. But mm -hmm. um, the thing about telling our stories is that it's not easy for us. And anyone who's listened to the podcast has heard me say that time and time again. And um, so I, I have a lot of respect for you wanting to come on and talk about it in, in your way. But before we do, so you just told me the story about your name. And it's mm -hmm. such a great name. I, mm -hmm. I just honor that so much. But I was given from um, a friend of mine, a shell casing from Sixica, and I put mm -hmm. it in my medicine pouch along with my aniscum. And uh, so that helps protect me everywhere I go. And I always think about that. I always think about uh, the power of, uh, of the Blackfoot and then gifting something like that. So to hear you talk about yes. that was pretty incredible. And yesterday mm -hmm. I was lucky enough, uh, the uh, Friendship Center had, um, Adrian Wolflake, and mm -hmm. he talked about the contingent of Indigenous people that went over to uh, the beaches of um, in France, and mm -hmm. that incredible ceremony. He was teaching us all about that, and mm -hmm. uh, he actually showed us the. There's a huge memorial, and it has one of the um, members from from your your area. His name was up there from World War One. And uh, I just was bawling all day yesterday and my mm -hmm. eyes are all watery today thinking about it. So yeah. um, I just wanted to share that with you because it just it's uh, so the the Blackfoot, they come from such a strong, strong background mm -hmm. and they really are warriors in, in so many different ways in the different mm -hmm. uh, ways that you can carry yourself. And that's that, that's why it's an honor to have you back and, and to hear you talk about uh, who you are and your name, because uh, I see you as, as one of those strong warrior women. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we talk about uh, violence against Indigenous women, and it's mm -hmm. so insidious, and it's mm -hmm. in every aspect. And that's yeah. why uh, you talking and sharing your story, it, it's just such a sign of strength. 
And I, I honor that. So I'm grateful to have you here to talk about what you would like to talk about. Um, so yeah, I'll just pass you the floor. Oh, no, wait, I'm not going to pass you the floor because <laughs> I wanted to tell you that when you were on my show, um, you know, obviously your your associations and such very much promoted it. And there was this huge mm -hmm. spike in uh, downloads from your first show. So I wanted to say thank you for all that work that you had done, giving it to your colleagues and your friends and family, because a lot of people heard that episode. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm really grateful. So thank you. Yes. Yeah. Well, I'm grateful too. Thank you for, you know, the platform. And I think that it is so important to, you know, even in this demonstrate the relationship of like ongoing conversations. And, you know, um, I think that respect that you also gave to me to share what I needed in that moment and knowing all of the stuff that I was holding on to and, and also, you know, giving me the space to continue that conversation. These are, you know, the types of avenues that I think are really important for people to learn and to be able to connect to other people's stories. And so I appreciate that too. Um, and I also really appreciate you sharing that story because um, Marf Mark Wolfleg was Adrian's dad. Um, so yeah, that, that just, you know, helps me to know that I'm in the right place and on the right path. And, um, you know, I, that's, you know, a part of our family that we are, you know, reconnecting to right now. And I think that's a really important part of my journey. Um, Mark Wolfleg was adopted by my great, great grandparents. So he was my grandpa Philip's brother. And, you know, when I, when I kind of started to, you know, understand how we were related, um, you know, at first it made me really sad because I had no idea. I, you know, I always knew of Mark, but I didn't know of his children. And so, I've been really blessed at this point in my life to be re reconnected back to them. And um, Elvine uh, Wolf Lake Eagle Speaker is one of those people that has been really important and significant in my life right now to helping me to build that connection and um, guiding me along, you know, a good path. And losing my aunt Esther was, you know, really, really difficult for me because she played a huge role in my life. Um, she was my godmother and, you know, a constant kind of person in my life that I knew would just, you know, just loved me unconditionally. Um, and she also played a huge role in passing down, you know, some traditional knowledge within our family. And so, yeah, that kind of connection is really important for me and hearing stories like that and you know, noticing all of those ways that, you know, it always brings me back home to my ancestors is really powerful. So I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. Oh, well, we're on your land. <laughs> <laughs> we're on your land now and and it's funny i did a land acknowledgement teaching last night and you know um that terminology oh we are a, a guest on this land i'm like oh let's go over the history mm -hmm. what guest looks like compared to the reality yeah yes <laughs> that that is so important and maybe i can even just start there um you know so part of what i really wanted to share today was to go a little bit deeper into my story. Um, in the first podcast, I really felt like it was important to situate myself, to build that relationship with listeners and to just, um, yeah, like I said, just situate myself, you know? Um, and, you know, now I wanna kind of go a little bit deeper into my story and where I'm at today. Um, and I guess I can start with how I met you. <laughs> um, and so, Basically, um, I, I was working in um, a nonprofit agency 
when I met you. And at that point, I had reached out for support around um, training for land acknowledgements. And, you know, as a therapist, as a psychologist, and um, I was working as a sexual violence therapist, you know, the agency was really pushing us to do land acknowledgements and the importance of doing so, um, but in a way that really didn't fit for, for any of the staff. And so what I noticed really early on was, you know, places where there was land acknowledgements, you know, within the agency and both, you know, externally, um, that for me, that was really important. That was, you know, that touched my spirit, that really grounded me in a way, connected me to my ancestors, reminded me of, you know, where I come from and where I am and why that's important and how healing those moments were to feel seen. Um, you know, initially there was some discomfort. Initially, I think, you know, there was feelings that I had to process because I felt you know, like the spotlight was on me in that moment. Like everyone's looking, you know, to the only indigenous person in the room as they do this land acknowledgement. And I'm like, this isn't just, this is not for me. You're the one that needs a reminder. Like there's a reason why in community, we don't typically do land acknowledgements. We don't really, I think need to, there's other ways that we acknowledge where we are and call in our ancestors and continue that relationship with the land in, I guess, you know, a different format, but it really is the same, the same notion. And so I definitely can understand why land acknowledgements are so important. Um, and it really is like a first step that I feel like, you know, I, within the agency was struggling with because I'm like, why is it so difficult for people to take this first baby step? Like it's literally just the first step. And there is so much discomfort. Um, so, so many people not willing to lean into that space. Um, and so, you know, I took a step back and I really started to kind of scope out what was happening, um, for staff and asking people directly, like, you know, what, what comes up for you, you know, and people were so fearful of asking me, like, is it okay that we do land acknowledgements? How do you feel when we, you know, do them? And that opened up conversation and space to, to really kind of address what was going on within the agency. And, you know, so I brought that to the CEO and I said, listen, like you are pressuring staff to do these land acknowledgements, but you're not providing the training or like the foundation. You're just, that's very performative to just say, we need to be doing this. So let's check it off the list. Um, and so I, I was connected to you and I reached out to you to come and do some training within the agency. And, and that was huge. And again, just the first baby step within that agency that, you know, opened up, you know, larger kind of doors. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's how we met. <laughs> yeah. And, and the best part about that too, is, um, you know, I, I, it doesn't matter the organization, I could name a million of them right now, mm -hmm. but it, if they're not creating a space where folks feel comfortable identifying as indigenous, because everyone knows that they're looking at you. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, we only hired one. So we're all mm -hmm. looking, but you know, who else is looking are the Métis that are still like not mm -hmm. acknowledging yeah you know, and there's so many organizations where Indigenous don't even feel safe enough to identify as Indigenous, because yeah. that's what happens. As soon as mm -hmm. you do, they're like, mm -hmm. everybody's looking at you, you know, and everybody mm -hmm. wants cultural competency, uh, training from you on drop of a dime right now all the time. Mm -hmm. And, yeah. uh, you know, we were talking about what is a relationship look like, 
where do we even start in these organizations? Um, and mm -hmm. I tell people, land acknowledgements are not part of the 94 calls to action. How mm -hmm. can we just even start talking about truth mm -hmm. to have reconciliation if we don't even talk about where, where are you? Where's the mm -hmm. land you're on? Why are you yeah. here? And yeah. don't say the word guest to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can say it to other people, but don't say it to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I so yeah, I, I appreciate that's how we met. And I appreciate that you had reached out to me because I think it's it's critical. And and the you shouldn't be burdened within a, an organization with giving cultural competency lessons on a regular. Mm -hmm. And then because you're not considered um, that person, you were hired for a different purpose. Yeah. And uh, there's so much pressure on the one Indigenous liaison they ever hire, or somebody who openly talks about being Indigenous, right? Because everybody mm -hmm. has questions rather than going yeah. to an elder and giving tobacco. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, that was really what I had experienced within the agency. Um, you know, so as a, you know, a student, I started off within the agency, I did my practicum there and I held various roles like on the call out team and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, I think that the tra trajectory of my experience there was really just textbook. <laughs> um, you know, last time you had referred to the COCO diagram, you know, of women of color in nonprofit agencies or in organizations. Um, and that really is what I what I had experienced. Um, and I think that that is really important just to, you know, to share that whole um, story, I think, because there's so many pieces of that are that are really relevant to to other agencies in their learning and in this process. And, you know, when I started off in the agency, I, you know, I was a student, I was doing my master's of counseling and I was doing my practicum there. And I was really grateful for, you know, a good placement or what I thought was a really good placement. Um, and I, I was really focused on just kind of, you know, getting my hours done, you know, focused on my client work that I really felt like, um, you're right. Like I didn't want to share like, Hey, this is who I am. This is where I'm from. And also not even that I didn't want to, but that that space doesn't exist, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so in the, the hustle of this work, I think, um, a lot of my staff, did, staff, like my peers didn't even know that I was Blackfoot and, you know, because I am white passing, you know, there was a lot of things that were overlooked and, um, when I really started to kind of speak out a bit more was when I got through my internship and I was out of that kind of, you know, phase of just really being focused on one, one thing. And I started to reflect on my journey. And at that point, I already was noticing themes in the work that I was doing. Mm. You know, I was kind of questioning, like, you know, if, um, you know, sexual violence disproportionately affects Indigenous community, then how come I don't have an Indigenous client? How come I haven't, you know, um, even heard of like Indigenous clients in consultation or, you know, why are these things not coming up and starting to really look at like the model that, you know, we were being taught within the agency and seeing some of the gaps there. And um, I guess just having time to reflect on what it had felt like for me to be a part of that agency thus far and noticing those times where, you know, I didn't want to really engage with like the training material. 
And I, I kind of sat back and I was like, wait a minute. Like, I think it's because I didn't really see myself in any of this. It felt like it didn't apply um, to me or my community. And, you know, it was just kind of getting through it in some ways. And also like very foundational things that I had already learned and um, that I felt like it was my responsibility then to, you know, like take the next steps and integrate things and adapt for my clients, which, you know, is always going to be true, but also just noticing that huge gap. Mm -hmm. And so I definitely, you know, started to speak out a bit more. And, you know, as I started to feel safer um, with my peers, you know, knowing that, you know, I I could um, speak up in meetings and, um, but also feeling that responsibility, like, why is nobody else seeing this? Why is nobody else noticing this? Um, When I say these things, how come when I look around the room, everyone is, you know, shocked and, you know, you could just feel the discomfort and tension. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that's kind of where, you know, I started to really take a stance on, you know, what my role was and how that was directly related to my, my ethical code as a psychologist, like that, that is my role. And, um, you know, and it's also like, looking around the room, like it's also your role. So, you know, why am I alone in this? Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, that's kind of how, how things started out. Um, And it came to a point where, you know, I remember there was um, a rally happening or yeah, around, you know, the pipelines. And at the same time, that same week, there was also um, a vigil for missing and murdered indigenous women. And I, you know, felt like leaving work, you know, I was going to be in these spaces and, and then coming back to a a workspace where I couldn't speak about that. There wasn't space to talk about larger issues. Um, And the overlaps of that, you know, like the relevancy in the work that we were doing and how it's directly related and how it's outlined so clearly in so many, you know, spaces and it's accessible and yet, you know, we're not really integrating it. So that disconnect was and huge. I was just going to add, but that conversation that we need to have, you and I need to have in those spaces, they would stop everything for everyone to talk about the ramifications of stampede, right? Mm-hmm. Like as something that's real world, that talks about sexual assault, that talks about the reality of, you know, an organization and, and, uh, or, or not even the stampede, but any other type mm-hmm. of major event that comes yeah. to Calgary, like we have Folk Fest, we have Stampede, we have mm-hmm. all of these events that come here on a regular basis, we would stop everything to have that conversation. Yeah. But you're talking about a very relevant conversation of pipelines and mm-hmm. MMIW, and mm-hmm. we won't stop to have that conversation, even though there's this big push to be like, mm-hmm. we're Indigenous friendly. Well, if we can't have this conversation about how pipelines and MMIW are directly related, then how, like, how friendly are you? Mm -hmm. And and then I know, and you know, it's because everyone that's in that organization has family that's in oil and gas, and they're not ready to have those conversations. And that is its own violence against women that they're not comfortable even talking about something when they are literally supposed to be the experts on talking about abuse. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. And, and that like really is like, 
the definition of privilege, I think, is to be able to remove yourself from that because you're not directly impacted or, you know, you don't have to face that on a daily basis. And so for me, it wasn't something that I could escape. And so it really started to to feel like this huge disconnection between my work self and, you know, myself, who I am as a Blackfoot woman. And, you know, my values weren't really aligning up with the agencies anymore. Um, and, you know, of course it crossed my mind. Okay. Do what, what do I do? Like, is there, is there other options? You know, is it just this agency? And I think it, it has become so clear that it's not, you know, um, that there, there really aren't any other options. Um, and more so than that, for me, it, it is my responsibility. It's my obligation to, you know, my ancestors and to future generations to be able to um, put in that work and to be able to take a stand. Um, you know, I, I never, I'm a very introverted person. <laughs> I am very shy. I do not like, you know, speaking up in large groups, but all of a sudden I felt so grounded in, in my values um, to a point where, you know, I really felt that this voice was coming from somewhere beyond me, you know, that this was informed by so much more than just me and looking at the bigger picture allows me to take those risks and to, you know, take a stand and to step out of my comfort zone. Um, and so that's exactly what I did. And I started to, you know, bring up these conversations. I started to push, you know, for spaces. And the very first, you know, space that I, I created was, you know, I, I said, okay, well, you know, let me do a PD then, you know, let me at least have that space so that I can open up a conversation. And that's exactly what it was about. It was about, you know, why are we not talking about this? Why doesn't this exist anywhere else? And, um, you know, if this agency is so, you know, grounded and rooted in, you know, feminism, like what, you know, what are you practicing? Like, where is that showing up? And like, yeah, where are you guys at? You know, is this just white feminism? Like, because I don't see any other, you know, representation or visibility. And, you know, those things really started to stand out to me, you know, being the only, one of the only racialized people, the only racialized person on um, the clinical team, um, for sure. And so, you know, I started to notice what the, the dynamics that were taking place and how much, how much responsibility and weight was put on other racialized staff on different teams, um, how disconnected all of the teams were. Um, and so these things I started to bring up to my supervisor and, you know, I held a sharing circle where I just invited, you know, the clinical staff into, into my lived experience. You know, I shared, this is what I'm, you know, um, experiencing every day. I used, you know, my thesis and some of the research to kind of, you know, have a format for that, but mostly I just shared my experience. You know, the only way that I, I know how to teach or how to, um, do that work is really by, by sharing my lived experience. Um, and so there was a really good response, you know, of course, everyone was like, Oh, you know, like, this is so important. We do care. It's just that, you know, we, we didn't know how to even start to have this conversation. And so, um, you know, I started to advocate a bit more for this to be a part of our workplace and, you know, there had been anti-racism training already done, um, 
but, you know, just kind of having those conversations of like, oh, okay, so what came from that? You know, asking really curious questions about, you know, where the agency was at and, um, and then, you know, COVID hit. And I think there was a lot of pressure on agencies, um, you know, around the Black Lives Matter movement and a lot of agencies really wanting to step up or, you know, saying that they are stepping up. Um, and so, you know, that, that really helped kind of fuel this movement. And what had happened was we, we created like a, a little committee. Um, and that's actually where, you know, things started to come to light in terms of, you know, the dynamics within the agency and, you know, pretty quickly I started to experience, you know, some microaggressions and, um, you know, a lot of, you know, gaslighting that, that was witnessed for the first time, I think within the agency, um, you know, before I think that people didn't feel as safe to speak out about it, but we were, you know, having regular sharing circles where we, you know, invited staff to lean into this space to, um, you know, sit and share like their gifts and their experiences and um, to start to learn how to sit in that discomfort, which is really interesting because we're talking about a group of, you know, like therapists, people in the helping profession. Um, so it was really surprising to me to see how much, um, you know, decision-making and just how much the whole agency was like fear-driven. Yeah, no, it's, oh, white fragility is the worst. It just mm -hmm. ruins everything. Um, mm -hmm. and, the, and the thing is, is that there, there's always so much potential. Mm -hmm. um, and you were talking about, um, you know, feeling like you're an introvert and then, but having that strength. And mm -hmm. I think we talked earlier about the strength of your family on your, this territory that's yours. Um, you know, of course, that's where that strength came from. And now here in the Black Lives Matter movement that's happening, really and truly people are starting to get aware. And because mm -hmm. some people are still fighting that, Mm -hmm. they're fighting and and unfortunately in positions of power you know that's yeah, where yeah. the organizations go and um so a rock the um mm -hmm. nonprofit here at, out of community wise it's done that you know policy work so that literally you're just handing it to nonprofits and being like here you go you don't have to reinvent the wheel they do have accountability processes that's mm -hmm. the irony is that um you know we know that there's not very many organizations that are being accountable that mm -hmm. take the training and then actually institute the changes that are mm -hmm. needed. We know that the stats are there. So it's really, um, you know, you, I, I know when people are lying. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. Cause yeah. the accountability process is there and most of the uh, nonprofits still won't do it. Exactly. And that's, I think what really came to the surface was AROC has this, um, this diagram where they talk about, you know, assessing where your agency is at and based on, you know, whether you're active or inactive and then fear motivated or values motivated. Um, and so I could really see the agency kind of trying to move, um, but, you know, going from a place of perpetuating harm to performative. Um, and that was, you know, that's equally harmful. And especially 
for, you know, a staff member and for clients. Um, and that's what I really tried to bring it back to, you know, and, and that's what really informed the approach that we took was, you know, I, I had multiple conversations with the CEO, with my supervisors, um, who at that time were, you know, supportive and, and really said, you know, when I came into this role, I talked about how I wanted to have partnerships with my community, how I wanted to be able to have a satellite office in my community or to bridge services somehow. Um, but basically in the time that I had been there, it become so apparent how harmful that would be mm. um, because you're not talking about sexual violence from anything other than how it, you know, affects a very privileged white community you're not talking about how sexual violence looks in indigenous communities or any other, you know, minorities or marginalized groups. You're, you're really not. And that's harmful. That's super harmful. And that's why you're not seeing as many clients, um, you know, coming through the doors and sticking around. Yeah. And so, you know, I started to triage, you know, clients who were um, identifying as indigenous and wanted an indigenous therapist And, you know, the feedback that I got from clients was huge in informing my, you know, approach and moving forward. And I really think that that's the way that it needs to be done is like, if you're there to serve the community and, um, you know, especially in this role where you, you hold a lot of power, you know, it is your job to redistribute that power to, um, you know, use that in in a good way and to make sure that your services are all client centered, you Mm -hmm. know, what, or else, what are you doing? You know, Um, you're getting funding, (laughs) you're getting funding. This uh, elder, he's since passed away. Um, um, He used to be the executive director of the friendship center. He once told Mm -hmm. me that um, white nonprofits are for the uh, white wives that were sitting at home twiddling their thumbs while their husbands um, did oil and gas downtown. And it gave them something mm-hmm. to do. And I've been unable to disprove him uh, yeah. since he said it to me. Um, and the intimate partner violence, um, you know, model that's kind of out there is kind of the white model, mm-hmm. right? And uh, as opposed to uh, more of a uh, Indigenous lens, multicultural lens, mm-hmm. there's that uh, picture of family violence, right? Mm-hmm. So it, and willing to, you know, talk about a completely different dynamic. And, um, and that's what we found, like it, when we talk about uh, family violence, um, in, uh, in general, Mm -hmm. people are still really using the intimate model, um, intimate partner model. And, uh, that's the problem, uh, when it comes to not just the indigenous community. I mean, there's, Mm -hmm. uh, honor-based violence as well here in the Northeast and, uh, you know, there's many different dynamics to it. And, that's always been my problem with this like uh you know obviously in in this co-chair position of of the city this is the type of thing that we're hearing and then yeah we have lateral violence in our Mm -hmm. community and that's again that family violence that Mm -hmm. we don't um that the white nonprofits don't want to really go down that road um like you said they're uncomfortable doing land acknowledgements (laughs) meaningful Mm -hmm. ones let alone actually being truthful right so um so yeah you're you're really stuck in a a rock in a hard place to infiltrate some of these um uh companies and then try to bring systemic changes but um there's not Mm -hmm. the support there so 
Uh, most recently, I heard of a, a group, they had me come to their um, policy development, and they were talking about uh, partnerships where mm -hmm. we bring in an uh, Indigenous person, then we have to bring in more so that that mm -hmm. way they're supported. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think that, you know, people are always trying to do an environmental scan of where are we on truth and reconciliation? And it's like, well, we're not even in a space where Indigenous liaisons mm -hmm. are safe in these um, nonprofits yet. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, for sure. And and that's, you know, the conversations that we had really early on were like, you know, you're wanting to build these partnerships. And I, I agree that that is the most responsible way to do work is to build the, you know, the partnerships and, and bridges um, and like in healthy relationships. But, you know, we were so far from that. And so that's where, you know, the, the idea of starting internally was, you know, the most ethical. And that means let's just start even having conversations, you know, let's just start doing that work um, within the agency and knowing what that was going to bring up. You know, I, I myself, of course, trusted the process because I know I know what that's going to look like and I know what's going to come to the surface. And I was prepared for all of that and, you know, able to have my supports outside of the agency externally um, with community consulting with elders, you know, doing my work, but not having that recognized that that's that's double the work and that, you know, it comes back to this walking in two worlds um, you know, and often that's not recognized, like the, I guess the responsibility of all of that and that I don't leave that in the workplace. You know, when I, when I walk out into the world, these are my lived experiences. I have family members who are impacted by sexual violence. I know, you know, that I know what that looks like in my community. And, I also deserve that space to be able to integrate that into my work in a responsible way. And yeah, like, you know, nonprofits are inherently, you know, harmful <laughs> in a different way and, you know, very virtuous. And I think that's what, you know, really came out is that, you know, we as an agency were built and really upholding white supremacy. Um, With that Christian white savior saviorism yeah. right yeah. um and that that's the problem is that it's still mm -hmm. coming from that place of we'll save you and i mean i've yep. seen it with teachers right yeah. thinking that they're saving all these indigenous kids from gang violence and i just mm -hmm. thought you white yeah. savior <laughs> shove <Yes>. that <laughs> yes. you know and and it was it's so problematic because like I hear what you're saying your your skill set your knowledge and mm -hmm. and we need you exactly doing what you're you should be doing because mm -hmm. i know um so just some background i have sexual violence uh family violence in my background mm -hmm. um and I'm, I'm, i had a, a grandfather actually go to jail for that and yeah. you know that really affected a lot of people in my family nice. as a result and we have problematic elders that are prominent elders mm -hmm. that are hurting indigenous yeah. girls and indigenous boys and when they confide and you know if you're a registered social worker you you have to tell i am not 
Um, but that bigger mm -hmm. picture of, okay, well, how do we get support networks for this yeah. child? And the truth is because we have, you know, the Sheldon Kennedy groups mm -hmm. and, and some of these wounded warriors, uh, there's some other groups, but they're not, they still don't have indigenous knowledge. They're mm -hmm. still coming from that, you know, Christian based white mm -hmm. savior, um, intimate partner violence concept, as opposed to, you know, understanding our issues and you are that person they can absolutely change the system. There's some other mm -hmm. amazing people trying to do that mm -hmm. same work. But um, again, it's that barriers that come up against where the people yeah. in power are so, you know, um, stuck in their white fragility, they can't see outside and, and allow you the space to do the mm -hmm. work that we need you to do. And yeah. we need it everywhere, right? We yeah. need you to like develop an army and that army goes out mm -hmm. and fixes this because yeah. it's it, it needs fixed yeah. <laughs> so sure. that's what we need so i you know i just hope i, I hear you and i i see this mm -hmm. all too bad too much too often and we need um more understanding from canadians that their role is to step back yeah, and to yeah. give that space and and the worst part is is if they lifted you and give gave you that you know room to work but uh, what i'm finding and i think i'm i'm coming to more peace with actually mm -hmm. is that this is an indigenous centered conversation yeah. they're used to settler centered in conversations and we just have to start building our own network because yeah. we cannot rely on them in any capacity because they're just too too stuck in their white fragility and their saviorism to mm -hmm. actually do the work to allow us the space yeah. so um you know I, i'm wishing you all the luck in the world as you're going through this journey because i know we need you and mm -hmm. we need uh, lots of you mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah 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 and i think you know recognizing that that like saviorism is on that spectrum of of racism you know yeah. is really difficult for many people to acknowledge and um that yeah somehow that kind of became convoluted in my work um that you know those were the parts that i was really pushing away is that you know if you're in that space you're not willing to accept feedback you know in that you know space along that spectrum you don't have the intentions of of really helping or making creating change it's to to be seen as helping or to be seen as creating change, that performative nature. Yeah. Um, and that's where I had to set really hard boundaries of like, that's not my work, that's your work. You know, I'm here for my clients, I'm here for my community. Um, these are the things that are coming up and, you know, really passing that along. Um, identifying that was really hard. Um, well, not, not difficult for me, but to, um, I guess, highlight that for the agency became a, you know, me against them, you know, and that's where I started to really experience a lot of harm, um, you know, tons and tons of gaslighting that, you know, like I said, was, was being witnessed this time, you know, because a lot of staff were further along in their work and they were actually really, you know, um, integrating, you know, the shared knowledge and what we were doing was centering Indigenous voices, bringing in, you know, Indigenous facilitators to do training, um, you know, getting together in circle and, you know, consulting about clients in a different way um, where we could do that from a human place, you know, mm -hmm. when we sit in circle, you know, part of the teachings was to 
come to that circle as whole and to learn how to, um, you know, make decisions from that place of being whole um, in terms of sinking into your spirit and allowing, you know, that mental, emotional, physical part to, to be aligned. And for so much of the work that we were doing, it was really disconnected. So that was, that was huge for people to come together and to do that. It was powerful and it was rewarding. And, you know, I love, I love that work. I love my job. I love counseling. I love all of it. That's what I'm there for. I'm not there to console you, you know, when you get upset, (laughs) um, when that white fragility comes out, um, or to, you know, console egos. And I think that's really what it came down to was, you know, throughout the process, it really, they doubled down, you know, and, and all of a sudden there was performance concerns, you know, associated with my work. And, um, I was assigned a new, you know, manager because my supervisor left and, um, there was a lot of like toxic micromanagement, where you know it really is very fear-based very ego-driven um built upon supremacy and keeping people in line so this is what you know staff started to notice is you know this agency claims to be you know really client-centered and you know meet the needs of their staff and they do that as long as you don't speak up or speak against them Mm. as long as you're quiet and follow the rules you'll get through and it kind of started this collective movement. And I, I do have to say that I had a lot of support from staff and a lot of people willing to, you know, step up and use their voice, use their power and privilege in responsible ways. Um, but unfortunately, you know, it did, it did come to a head and I really tried to move up through the ladder and have, you know, these concerns addressed. And in the end, I had to leave the agency because it was so harmful. Um, you know, to the point where they were, you know, harassing me with HR and harassing me with, you know, um, meetings being recorded and, you know, threatening to put me on a performance plan and, you know, all of these things to just quiet and silence me. And, you know, that was not something that I was willing to do. I wasn't willing to compromise my values um, or be a part of this system. So, I did leave the agency and since then I have, you know, filed a human rights complaint against the agency and I'm really, you know, grateful that that's moving along and that that was picked up and that there seems to be a lot of support there. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm hopeful in that process, but, you know, I I can't really speak to where that's going to go or, you know, if justice will ever come. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know Mm -hmm. it's really hard uh putting those human rights complaints through and seeing if they'll take them even, even mm-hmm. uh, that becomes a regular problem as well. And I find that, you know, the human rights um, are still coming from that Western point of view. Mm-hmm. So they don't necessarily understand um, racism. I've seen them really come down on discrimination for um, accessibility and come down for LGBTQ2 plus issues. Mm-hmm. But I really don't see the racism um being addressed in that organization yet or well not just that one I just mean like all of the human rights organizations that I have seen I haven't really seen the racism properly addressed 
mainly because they're not filled with people of color. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, so it yeah. is. It's so interesting how the um, very powers of structure or uh, structures of power um, infiltrate everything that is supposed to actually uplift those who are oppressed by yeah. it. But um, so I, I'm gonna, you know, definitely encourage you to come back on and talk about that process when mm -hmm. you're ready, and yeah. um, you know, and and continue that conversation. And if you feel like you would like to tell others, because I think for a lot of natives, um, you know, they don't file human rights complaints because of the time, the effort, the yeah. work. But it, it's hearing another native go through the process. Mm -hmm. I think is important for other natives to be like okay well maybe this is something that i can be thinking about or maybe if i'm in a really crappy workplace these are the things i should be thinking about in order to file that human rights complaint so you yeah. know I, I think it's uh i applaud you for doing that because it's a very difficult road uh to do um just like filing complaints for police a lot mm -hmm. of people are afraid to do that and uh, i encourage people to do it anyway you can um they are supposed to be separate um points of view i i've gone to the uh, calgary police office for example and they have very clearly a different division from the rest mm -hmm. on yeah. issues when it comes to complaints um that said are they capable of doing it yet let's well, not like they've apologized for their role in like i don't know clearing the planes or something. So I don't know if they're really ready for that, but that bigger picture yeah. that, you know, I, I want to see indigenous people standing up for their rights um, yeah. and reporting. There's stophate.ab.ca uh, for hate mm -hmm. crime instances. And sometimes we have hard evidence and we're just like, whatever, I don't have time. And I just yeah. want to encourage indigenous people to just take that extra step so that there are statistics to prove it. Yes. And that there are, um, you know, you might be the person on the podcast next talking about a successful uh, mm -hmm. human rights complaint and what that entailed. So, yeah. and I want that for our people. Yeah, for sure. I, I hope that, you know, you know, what I was told um, in comparing cases so far was that there wasn't any that really, you know, ref reflected back, you know, my situation and, and the different layers. Um, and that's so unfortunate because we know that it happens so much. I have so many friends in the, working in the community who have the exact same stories, like the exact same stories and it's not okay. Um, and that's part of the reason why I, I went this route was because, you know, I'm not just doing it for myself. I hope that it does set a new precedence and I hope that there are eyes on that case, you know, um, and that, you know, there is some level of accountability because, it's happening everywhere. And people always ask, you know, like how they can help or, you know, how they support, how to be a good ally, you know? And then when it comes down to it, like, you know, taking a, a stand in a space like this, you know, I, I'm not sure who stands next to me, you know? And mm -hmm. I, I know for sure that my community does. And I, that's the only reason why I was able to take it this far into stay so long within an agency where I was experiencing harm was mm -hmm. because like I said, I, I love my job and I love, you know, the work that I do. And I know that that's where I'm supposed to be. Um, and so I really do, I do think that I can, you know, credit the community for, for that support and for my ancestors for literally paving the way for me. Um, so I would love to, yeah, follow up and have conversations about where that goes. And, you know, I, I am the type of person that I want to, you know, be there and support in community 
that's one of the things that is really big for me, especially as a psychologist, because there are so few Indigenous psychologists that I want to, you know, create a community. The work that I'm doing now is through a collective um, to be able to offer alternate, you know, spaces for counseling and healing services that are, you know, rooted in Sitsugate Sitabi approaches to wellness and to acknowledging that there are diverse ways of healing and that, you know, spirituality plays a huge role in that for me. So I appreciate it so much. Oh, that's great. I'm so glad that you came on to talk about this because I, that's the other component of it, of healing. Um, you know, if we're not including spirituality, we're not going to get there. We need to yeah. be including that. And I think um, honoring your ancestors, honoring the spirits that are around you, that are guiding you in a good way, like that's the way that our bodies heal too. And mm -hmm. we don't even recognize it sometimes. Um, but we've been told not to. It's back to the um, imposed mm -hmm. Western belief systems. Yeah. Um, and worse, you know, we have to heal from the idea that some people have told us what, what, what we do spiritually is like... Um, Mm -hmm. uh, devil worshiping and negative when mm -hmm. it's actually the opposite that's what helps heal us mm -hmm. and, and helps yeah. us move forward um in the well-briety they always say that uh, culture is prevention yeah. and i believe that wholeheartedly so i uh, not just support i applaud what you're doing um mm -hmm. in the uh qt bimpok uh area like we talk about where are the you know, racially diverse, where mm -hmm. are those that are not homophobic, transphobic? Yeah. How are we supposed to have, you know, counseling if racial battle fatigue and, and homophobia are constantly draining a person of their, mm -hmm. their spirit, right? That straight yeah. cis agenda being imposed on people, um, yeah. you know, very difficult for, for our people to heal in that atmosphere. So mm -hmm. that's why you, what you're doing is so needed for, for folks to move forward and to heal, seeing their culture as the strength. Um, yeah. You know, the Western world likes to kind of focus on it as a negative. Um, yeah. And when it's the opposite, it's, it's empowering. And that's why they say it's negative because yeah. if people understood their full potential and their full strength and, and had their spirits helping them through this, like mm -hmm. even for me, I was mm -hmm. taught that way. But when I understood what our people had lived through, the resiliency for me to be here, now I'm like, I'm a winning lotto ticket and look at me and all of my ancestors <laughs> following me around. Yes. Look at me. You know, I'm just so cocky about it. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Yes. <laughs> so, and that's, and that's the whole point, right? Like yeah. that, that's what saved me. Your community, the Blackfoot people, they saved me because I just was such a lost little Dene in an urban mm -hmm. environment and it was um the blackfoot elders that were like whoa whoa whoa, girl get over here yeah. and now i'm here talking to you hoping that we can change the structure dismantle the um you know mm -hmm. saviorism and start actually giving people legitimate help because i think that's the that's the power dynamic it's not just colonialism it's not just white supremacy but it's that oh i'm in charge of your healing yeah and that's the most destructive way to look at healing i think positive like possible if people aren't empowered they're mm -hmm. not healing right so yeah and that's what we want to see so anyway thank you for being on my show again and i hope that you'll consider coming on a third time to talk about um you know the end journey when it when you get there i mean that could be years i don't know but you're mm -hmm. welcome when you're ready anytime even if it was tomorrow 
and yeah. uh, we can do that. So yeah, and I'm going to go with my ridiculous um, exit and you're more than welcome to join in because I think you, of course, have a, a even better lens of everything, all these resources that I give people, mm -hmm. um, even though people may not see them as that, that right now. Um, I'm proud of this prod podcast, giving solutions, cultural safety training, cultural first aid, and trying to create that safer space for Indigenous people, color, those with disabilities, LGBTQ2 plus to speak. Um, here to help .bc.ca has a whole section on what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it by authors Cheryl Ward, Chelsea Branch, Alicia Fritkin, and those are cultural action tools. And I've said hundreds of times in my podcast, so I hope uh, people support Indigenous work as part of their, um, you know, reconciliation work and settler understandings. I'm just lucky enough to highlight and repeat it here. Internalized racism, lateral violence is another form of violence Indigenous and marginalized folks experience by the structure of racism, homophobia, sexism, and this was all imposed on these lands, this uh, straight cis concept and, and uh, the Indian Act, Indian residential schools, land clearing policies, racialequitytools.org has a whole section on internalized racism for folks who are struggling with that by Donna Bevins. And I bring it up because I have another friend in my life who is QT Bimpak. He's uh, Dene from where I'm from, actually, and he wants to focus on um, sobriety with that lens of like okay let's unpack homophobia let's unpack that racism so that we can you know thrive in who we are that's why these racial equity tools.org is such an important uh, resource mm -hmm. do's and don'ts for bystander intervention by american friends service commission or committee so they help people if you see a muslim woman with a hijab getting you know <laughs> mistreated this is things that you can and cannot do. But here's the thing, like it was it wasn't yesterday, it was the day before. My Muslim friend was she had three attacks that she knew about in one day happening against Muslim women here in Calgary. That's not even the rest of the country, just here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we need people to understand that there are things that you can do. And if you don't know your first aid for cultural intervention, then go to this resource. It's afsc.org. American Friends Service Committee. Um, and if you're in Alberta and you see or experience racism, you can report it to Act to End Racism or text at 587-506-3838. Indigenous have been talking about our issues, sharing our, our traumas and reports, commissions, and public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more. Honor our words. Honor the treaties. Listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. If they don't recognize Indian residential schools, just bringing that up, they don't recognize marginalized people in their budget with gender equity plus. They're cutting violence prevention programs, services, Indigenous mm -hmm. education, uh, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, lack of human rights for migrants, immigrants, folks with disabilities. Know that your vote to that party directly negatively impacts marginalized people demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission reports, calls to action, and the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples report, the multiple reports about child welfare reform, and just going to throw it out there, I had another one that came up from the Office of uh, the Child Advocate here in Alberta, 
We have violence prevention programs and now 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls and Two-Spirit. And our guest talking about violence against uh, women and, and gendered violence in general, um, you know, we don't have the lenses and we need that. And we need politicians to be implementing this type of um, lens and talking about it. And I'm just not even hearing it. Denying these reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our people are experiencing extreme racism in the educational justice and health institutions with multiple reports that say the same thing. Demand change from election platforms, politicians, nonprofits. <laughs> they don't understand mm -hmm. colonialism, racism, privilege, sexism. They literally have zero business running or being in positions of power. It should be understood by everybody, parties, politicians, community organizations, nonprofits, sports clubs. A really great article I said in episode 62 is Truth Before Truth, How Non-Indigenous Canadians Become Allies. And holy, I should update that because um, right now with the 215 graves that were uh, found and then they ha have since found way more, um, you know, everyone's like, how do I be an ally to non-Indigenous or to Indigenous people? and you know, I, I literally, you can Google it and there will be so many articles about it. Mm -hmm. I recently had a four minute video that kind of got retweeted a lot because of it. And that it's just shocking to me that people still don't know how to engage indigenous people. If you're experiencing emotional distress after hearing anything we talk about today and want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It's toll free, open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I like it because it has a text option at hopeforwellness.ca and of course a lot of Indigenous languages. If more related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls and two-spirit, there is a toll-free national crisis line at 844-413-6649. And if you're not Indigenous, you can always call uh, 211 or um, 833-456-4566. For more supports if you need that. I just am going to add for the first time today the 60 Scoop Indigenous Society of Alberta website, SSISA.ca. And that's uh, really specific to Alberta, but I think it's a really important resource. And if you go onto Twitter and go hashtag survivor driven, that might bring you some more resources for 60 Scoop kids. And 60 Scoop is a policy that continues today. So just because it says 60 Scoop doesn't mean it's not stopping today. If it wasn't for this stupid policy, I may not even be political. Um, if you see or experience racism, report it to Act to End Racism or text at 587-506-3838. Um, I also want to give a, a shout out. It is pride, number one. But number two, the Trevor Project has lots of different supports for LGBTQ, uh, their youth, and peer support. So go to their uh, number here at 866-844-7386. And then, of course, even I, I'm, so, I'm old, old, but even I access the kids' help phone at 1-800-668-6868. And... Um, lifevoice.ca crisis supports lgbtq2 plus crisis supports if you so need them violence is my everyday reality if every indigenous generation has faced it that's why i started this podcast to speak freely without 
interruption, tone policing, leadership shaming without gaslighting questions, as many people don't want to hear Indigenous opinion, sure want to tell us theirs, usually by people who've never experienced racism, who know nothing about colonialism, the constant surveillance of Indigenous people, our protests, our vigil, and our rights microaggressions. Then there's people dealing with internalized racism who become gatekeepers and survive off the status quo. Others who are in their trauma. <sighs> Internal external racism is a everyday reality for Indigenous people. That's why I started this podcast as a boundary to be heard. Uh, I want to say thank you to my ancestors, my granny and my mom of what strength looks like through your example. I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt. My stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian family and roots and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. It is through her, I'm a second generation proud Calgarian. Um, thank you to my husband Darcy for producing and editing this show. He's been my childhood friend, my husband, the father of our child and my support down my journey of the red road. Uh, he's witnessed decades of racism and sexism. And to our child who we are blessed to learn from daily, I am honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. Uh, I hope my daughter and my family will be proud in the future of us trying to discuss these present day issues in a way they can understand. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian where you can pledge and support. Thank you to my previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, to those who cannot afford to give, we'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com where you can send in your comments and questions. And I also have a YouTube channel where you can go and subscribe. Go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and pin posts on social media. And I want to end by giving side eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not your dish. And my beautiful cousin would respond, or you'd be in my dish. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the show and thank you for being on it.